Hello, this is Everwonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. NASA is going back to the moon later this year with the Artemis 1 mission. And in March, NASA rolled out their massive new rocket for Artemis to the launch pad. Ever wonder who builds those rocket engines? On this episode, we talk to two of those people. Nate Perkins and Doug Bradley both work at Aerojet Rocketdyne, the company that makes the engines for NASA's new rocket. Nate and Doug work on a rocket engine called RS-25. Four of these engines are mounted at the base of the rocket, and they will be the first engines to fire when the rocket lifts off and heads to the moon. Let's get into it. We have two guests from Aerojet Rocketdyne joining us today. Nate Perkins, you are a mechanical design engineer on the RS-25 nozzles. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Barry. Glad to be here. And we also have Doug Bradley, the RS-25 deputy program manager. Doug, welcome. Thank you, Perry. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm just beyond excited to talk to both of you today. It's definitely not every day you get to talk to real-life rocket scientists. Now, I know that you and your team at Aerojet Rocketdyne are focused on building the rocket engines, the RS-25s, uh, for NASA's upcoming Artemis I mission. But before we dive deep into that, I just want to give our listeners a big-picture overview because folks might not be familiar with the mission or its new mega-rocket. Uh, maybe people were surprised when they saw some headlines recently and these really gorgeous photos from when NASA rolled out the giant new space launch system rocket to its pad in March. But... Let's just start with Artemis 1 first. Doug, what is the goal of the Artemis 1 spacecraft? What's it going to do? Yeah, the goal of, of Artemis 1 is to test the entire system and to fly it without people on board so we don't put anybody in jeopardy as we're testing out the system. There are more missions planned after Artemis 1. We have Artemis 2 and 3, right? So can you just give us a sense of the goal of the whole Artemis program? Yeah, the, the big picture view is, is actually we're going to Mars eventually. Mm. And the moon is, is practice to go to Mars. Mars is, and you ask why. I mean, it's, it's exploration. I think humans are kind of wired to be explorers. Yeah. Uh, there's all, always all sorts of practical things that come out of the space program and, and just doing new things. But for the rocket and the mission itself, the, the end game is to go to Mars. Okay. But that's very difficult. Uh, Mars, it, it takes over six months to get there. You have yeah. to spend six months or more on the planet until the, the planets are aligned properly again. And then it takes you six months back. Well, that's a, at least a year and a half trip, mm -hmm. long trip. So you have to get really good at space. And so we've been working up to that. We've gone to the space station. We've learned to, to live and work in space six months at a time. Some astronauts have stayed up as, as long as a year. Now we're going to the moon, and that's practice as well. We're going to go to the moon. We're going to stay there longer. In the Apollo days, the astronauts stayed a couple days. We're going to stay months now. We'll be building structures up there. The types of things you're going to have to do if, if you want to go to Mars. So once we get good at going to the moon, then it'll be time to go to Mars. And working out all those systems that, that are required for that. The immediate launches, uh, Artemis 1 is unmanned, un, un, uncrewed, uh, just to check out everything else. Artemis 2, there will be crew on board, but we won't be landing yet. We still have to make sure that all the systems are working right. 
in parallel with this, we're working on the landers. And so Artemis II will be orbiting the moon and then coming back. If I was an astronaut, I'm not sure I'd want to go on that trip. <laughs> You're so close. Uh, but that's what they did in the Apollo days as sure. well. A wonderful mission, actually. And then Artemis Three is boots on the moon. Uh, first woman, first person of color on the moon, and it'll be four astronauts there, and they'll be there. I don't know exactly how long they're planning now. I think they're still planning the mission objectives. Right. Uh, but that'll be people back on the moon. That that'll be fantastic. I mean, I was I was young when we landed on the moon the first time, but that was that was exciting. It'd be great for it'll be great for this generation to experience that same thing. Yes, yes. As someone who went to space camp when he was in fourth grade, I was always very jealous that I wasn't part of the Apollo generation. So I'm very excited for Artemis <laughs> 3 when we get there. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to focus on, on Artemis 1 and take a, a closer look at your guys' engines and, and the rocket. One, one point I wanted to clarify, though, before we go there. Since Mars is the ultimate goal, is the rocket that we see on the pad now going to change very much when we eventually get really good at going to the moon and we're ready to go to Mars? Or is it going to essentially look the same? Do you guys have like enough power already built into it to, to get all the way to Mars? We're almost there. Okay. What the, one of the big changes, they're, they're going to change the solids a little bit, make them lighter basically. So you can, mm. that'll translate into cargo. Our engines can actually go a little higher in power level. So we're going to go a little higher in power level. So both both of those things will be more cargo-carrying capability. Right now, Artemis One has one upper stage engine, one RL-10. That's going to change to four RL-10s. Mm. So you can imagine the, the rocket will get bigger and taller, but the, the basic components will remain the same. So it's very much evolvable without having to go through more development and, and um, expensive development. So mm -hmm. that's part of the reason the rocket is designed the way it is, so it can be evolvable to those, those larger cargo-carrying missions. I see. Uh, Nate, this next question's for you. For the younger crowd, uh, we're used to seeing things like SpaceX Falcon 9 do launches, SpaceX Falcon Heavy, you know, did one launch. Um, people uh, from the Apollo generation obviously remember the Saturn V. Uh, how does... The rocket for Artemis One, the space launch system, how is it similar or different from, from those other rockets that people might be more familiar with? Because this is the first time it's like rolled out. Like I've seen renderings, but this, this is a new rocket. Yeah, and, and really it, it looks very similar uh, visually to the, to the Saturn V. And one of the key differences from the other space companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, it, you know, this particular rocket's not a reusable rocket. So what, what's really going on here is, you know, leveraging heritage technology, which um, is really critical in this kind of stepping stone approach. You don't want to reinvent all new systems from the ground up, clean sheet, when you've already, we've already done that. You know, we, you've, you've done that with, uh, with the Saturn V and the Apollo program. You've built this rich heritage. Uh, we, we call it heritage in the aerospace industry. It's, um, you know, hardware that's been checked out, it's been certified, certain technologies and, and specific designs like the space shuttle main engine you know, we consider that really solid heritage with which to build new programs. So it takes out a lot of risk, uh, both in schedule and cost, and uh, and also technical risk because you've proven out these kind of systems. So you want to 
utilize those systems, uh, as we're doing with SLS, to take out a lot of those unknowns, uh, especially when you're dealing with, with human safety with our NASA astronauts um, and you're dealing with, uh, you know, U.S. taxpayer dollars. But when you look at the rocket, it's very similar to the Saturn V. It's really tall, right? Right, right. Very similar height. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the most powerful rocket, um, you know, that exists. And it's also a good point to talk about, you know, some of the differences with the, the whole reusability kind of comment mm-hmm. is, um, you know, that's a, it's a common criticism of SLS is, you know, why are we investing in this uh, non-reusable technology? And really that comes a little bit back to the heritage comment, but also it has to do with how massive the rocket is. This isn't a small system. Right. And reusability is a very non-trivial problem to solve. So as soon as you add reusability into a system like this, um, which, you know, during the origin of, of SLS wasn't even something that was performed yet in, in space, then you're increasing risk dramatically and increasing cost. You're increasing weight of the components. So you're decreasing uh, the amount of mass that you can put into orbit and put on the moon. So mm-hmm. really it comes down to leveraging our heritage technologies and it gives us the clearest path to an extremely powerful rocket, which will help us achieve those those goals in space. I'm so glad you brought up, you know, that we're reusing heritage designs because here at the California Science Center, obviously the space shuttle is near and dear to our heart because we have Endeavor on display. Uh, just for our listeners, when we say SLS, we're talking about the space launch system, the new rocket uh, that your guys' engines are going on. And you took the engines out of Endeavor to put on one of the space <laughs> launch systems rockets, the SLS rockets. So, uh, Doug, this is kind of like a pop quiz trivia question. Do you happen to know if Endeavor's engines are on Artemis 1? I'll answer that a different way. We have engines on Artemis 1. Two of the engines on Artemis 1 actually flew on Endeavor. Wow. One of them flew four times on Endeavor. The the other one flew once. So they're experienced flyers on Endeavor, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And it's got even more personal connection to you, I understand, right? Because you worked on the shuttle program uh, before... The Artemis program. So, so how does all that feel? Yeah, that I mean, it feels great. I was the I, I worked in a lot of different uh, positions on the on the space shuttle program for the space shuttle main engines SSMEs we call mm-hmm. them. Uh, started out as a designer and just moved around for different responsibilities. Uh, my last job was as chief engineer of the space shuttle main engines for our company. Uh, that was just a tremendous job, you know, working with a fantastic team. Uh, working on issues, working to get things ready for flight, uh, just like we're doing now. And so to see these engines fly again, and even though we're going to drop them in the ocean, they're they're going down great because they're sending us to the moon. So it was a, a very satisfying program. And and these engines, some of our guys uh, described them as our children. They were reusable. We got to know them very well. Mm. These different engines have different uh, characteristics and you get to know them. So when you look at the data, you can explain, well, this temperature is a little high because of these things on this engine, and we've got experience with those. So that's what what's, it makes us so confident to be able to fly these engines. We know them really, really well. We, we tested, we had over a million seconds of hot fire time on these engines wow. through, the, through the shuttle. Not these specific engines, but through the course of history of the shuttle program and they're they're just very reliable you know why uh 
people have asked, why these engines? You run trade studies and you choose different engines. So why did we choose these? Well, the reliability was probably the, the key part of it. First of all, for safety. Mm -hmm. uh, but secondly, you need to be ready to fly when you need to fly. Uh, going to Mars is a two-year trip. If you miss the launch window because you've got an engine problem, you can't fly for another two years. So we don't want to be in that predicament. Right. Uh, the engines are very, very high performance, so you've got reliability, high performance. That translates into more cargo. As Nate was saying, it's, it's all about maximizing the amount of cargo that you can carry. That's, that's people and, and cargo. Uh, the engines were very flexible. You can imagine in a long program like that, we tested them at all sorts of extremes. Sure. And found out that they can they can work in those extreme high power levels, different mixture ratios, how much fuel you're using with respect to oxidizer. And that opens up the space and the design areas for the vehicle manufacturers. If they need a little bit more thrust, well, we've already been there. Mm -hmm. If they're sizing their tanks in a certain way, then we can probably handle that mixture ratio. And then finally, we had 16 of them left after the end of the end of the shuttle program. So we were, with some modifications, we were not gonna be uh, holding back the program with, with engine work. And that, that's important, engines are complicated. Many times they'll be the, the critical path, as we call it, in getting a launch off. So for a lot of reasons, it was these, these engines were chosen. And for me, it was very satisfying because I knew the engines really well. I love that, um, you know, you hear pilots talk about aircraft almost have their own personalities, you know, even though they're from the same uh, assembly run. And I love that engines, you know, might have their own personalities that you guys feel very like much they're so. your kids. I guess now it's going off to college. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I want to veer more into... Um, we kind of touched on on the personal bits a little bit, but I want to veer more into like, how did you guys end up working at Aerojet Rocketdyne and becoming rocket scientists? Um, Nate, why don't we start with you? Like, like when you were a kid, did you know you wanted to be a rocket scientist? <laughs> no, not not at all. Actually, I was a skateboarder for years, um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, I was actually a sponsored skateboarder, really? skated in contests and things. Yeah. Oh. Um, no kidding. Then eventually, uh, but I knew I wanted to go to school because I loved um, science, technology. I loved, um, I knew I wanted to learn more. I, I just love learning in general, just mm -hmm. kind of a incessant learner. <laughs> and uh, so even while I was skating and stuff on the side, um, I, I owned a little skate shop business for a little while right out of high school. Mm -hmm. And then uh, um was doing classes on the side. So I didn't finish my undergrad till I was 28. Um, oh, wow. Got a job here and uh, immediately started grad school pretty soon after that and just finished grad school last year, actually. Congrats. Yeah, some, at some point during during college, it just became crystal clear that, that engineering was the right way and space in particular was what I was interested in. That's uh, my journey in a nutshell. 
<laughs> but no, I didn't know what, cool. that I wanted to be a rocket scientist at all. <laughs> Nobody ever does, so like it's, it's a, a weird question to ask, I know, always. Yeah. What about you, Doug? Were you always like a, a rocket fanatic when you were a kid? Not really. I was kind of all over the map, you know, when I was a kid, fireman, uh, baseball player, uh, whatever. Although it, it probably was in my genes a little bit. My dad used to work on flight simulators with the original seven astronauts. So that oh. was pretty cool. Um, and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and they used to test the Apollo rockets in the hills just north oh, of us. Wow. And so we could hear them. You know, they were, they were obvious and sometimes see the smoke. So maybe it was, maybe I was destined to do something <laughs> like this. But it wasn't my plan, really. I kind of yeah. interviewed here on a lark, and I thought, space shuttle's pretty cool. I'll do that for three years. And that was in 1977. So been here ever since. <laughs> One last uh, question. When Artemis 1 finally rolls out to the pad and it's ready for launch, where are you guys going to be? Nate, why don't we start with you? <laughs> I'll probably be watching with my uh, my wife and three-year-old girl. Um, not, in, not at Kennedy Space Center. We'll probably be at the house. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, depending on how things are then with, uh, with COVID and everything, it would be amazing to be, you know, in a, uh, in a, mission center here actually you know with the team you know enjoying it together but uh man it's gonna be something else seeing that thing fly yeah I, I bet. i'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> all your hard work and doug what about you are you going out to kennedy or are you staying in california well i'll tell you what i have the great privilege of being able to go out to kennedy for the launch and being outside even i spent a lot of time in the control room for shuttle launches, which is very exciting, mm -hmm. uh, but to see it outside and feel the the vibration against your you know your chest pounding and the how loud and powerful it is, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I'm in a part of my career now since I've I have enough general knowledge of the whole uh, uh, vehicle and engines. Uh, I'm kind of the answer man. I'll be I'll be the go between if if technical issues come up, then I can help if. There are general questions that maybe decision makers need. Uh, I can help with that too, uh, but that'll be outside watching that rocket launch, and so I'm I'm pretty wow. excited about that. Wow. Pretty pumped. Well, enjoy it. Uh, best of luck to both of you and the rest of your team. Uh, it's been fabulous talking to you both, Nate and Doug. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's, it is our pleasure, Perry. It's been great. We're excited to talk about people that are also excited about what we do in the space program. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. And just like for any of the listeners that are excited about space, please, please apply. That's not just engineering. That's, you know, material handling people. It's machinists. It's welders. You know, we need we need help. We're, we're going to space together. This is, you know, America's space program. Yeah, we're at a point in the company where we, we've got a lot of work, like Nate's saying. You, you talked about how do you pick a career. Well, if you have already are kind of out of school and you've got some skills, whether it's in engineering or whether you're physically a, a, a skilled mechanic or technician, we're, we're hiring now. We can use more help. It's, it's a fun team to be on with, with pretty cool goals. All right. Thanks so much for having us, Perry. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. That's our show, and thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever Wonder from the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth Johnson, along with Devin Stewart and Jennifer Aguirre, 
Liz Roth Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond5. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover our show. Have a question you've been wondering about? Send an email or voice recording to everwonder at californiasciencecenter.org to tell us what you'd like to hear in future episodes. <laughs>